After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his self. Jonathan took off the robe and he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and flutes. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Amen. So I've got to tell a story. You know, they tell you in preacher school not to tell stories that make you look good, and, and this certainly is not one of those. But uh, back in Indiana, we had planted a church, and, um, you know, Christmas came, and we had a Christmas tree, and I, I put it in the backyard. So Sandy reminded me that it needed to be disposed of, and I knew that, but um, I didn't. So finally, Sandy said, Mike, are you going to uh, get rid of that thing? And I said, sure, honey. Uh, I will get rid of it, but tomorrow is uh, like the trash pickup day. So instead of just chopping it up, why don't I just go see if they'll take it? She said, well, you know, Mike, that's only in January they do that. I was like, I know, but I'm just going to give it a try. So I'm not going to tell you what time of year it was, but I want to tell you that I walked out there in shorts and I pulled the tree out. You know, they get that kind of uh, sort of rust color when they've been around for a while, you know. And they, I was leaving a sprinkle of dead, you know, stuff along the way. And I stood there in my shorts in this pathetic expression of irresponsibility, but persistent laziness because I didn't want to cut the thing up. And the guy was out there and I said, hey, man, I, obviously... You know, it was behind a shed, by the way. I said, obviously, I, I, I'm a little late on the tree. I'm just wondering, what is the policy? I mean, is it just too late for you to take this off my hands? And, and the guy looked at me, and he got a big old smile, and he grabbed my tree, and he goes, hey, buddy, this is my policy, and he threw it in the back of the truck. I was like, yes! And I learned something important. Everyone has a dominion. Every one of us has a place that they control in a moment that is under their authority. Now, you probably don't feel like a bunch of kings right now. You're probably thinking, are you kidding me? Um, I'd like to have the kids clean their room. You know, that'd be a win. 
But the fact of the matter is, you wake in the morning, you have resources, you have time, you have a home, you have uh, relationships, children, husbands, wives, friends, roommates. And by, by the very nature of your life, God has given you control over something. And you make policies about it every single day. And here's what we learned from Jonathan. The only way to be friends with the king is to abdicate your kingdom. That's all you got. That's the only choice. So let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at um, Saul, who I'm going to call the first frenemy in history, and then look at his son, Jonathan, and see how we might live. So Saul has a useful affection. That's the characteristic of, uh, of using Christ for different things. What we want to find out from Saul is that relying on the Son of God, who David is a picture of in the story of the Bible, is not the same thing as true devotion to the Son of God. And Saul gives us a perfect example of that. So just to set this up, if you're not familiar with the context, Saul became king, and then Saul messed it up big time, just kept messing it up, and got rejected. And Saul knows that now. At this moment, Saul knows that the kingdom will be taken from him. Indeed, he knows it has been taken from him, but he's still holding on and has just had a battle with the Philistines. And so in this world of being given a dominion and then having the dominion taken from him, just like our father Adam was given a dominion and a dominion was taken from him, just in that exact world, Saul refuses to acknowledge the discipline of the Lord, has been told that another king is coming, although he doesn't yet know it's David, but still grips onto his power. And when he sees the Lord's anointed one, he immediately absorbs him into his service. So he's, in this way, you could say he's like a lot of evangelicals. He's maybe the first evangelical. I could use some help with my children, with my job, with my relationships, with my health. And Jesus seems helpful, so, so let me learn something about him and bring him into my life. You can hear that in verse 2. They, he took him that day, and what does it say? I actually skipped some when I was reading, I noticed halfway through. He took him that day, and he would not let him go. That's much of my life in Christianity. I got a hold of Jesus. I learned who he was. I learned how much he loved me. I learned what he was uh, capable of doing for a faithful servant and what took a hold of him, and I put him in my pocket, and I didn't let him go. And that's what Saul does. Saul wanted the frenemy of Christ, the person who wants to wants to rely on Christ without devotion to Christ, um, wants the service of Christ without the sovereignty of Christ. And that's really at the heart of it. We want Jesus to help us, and of course I'm uh, not articulating it because there's not time to tell the whole story, but I'm taking David here as a picture of the son of David as the promised king that would come. And we want his service. We want his help. And thank our God in heaven that our Lord and Savior Jesus, thank God that he is a servant and that he loves to help his people. But if that's all that we need and all that we want from him, if we only make him our ally we should, and not our master, we should remember that uh, 
that Stalin was our ally at one time in World War II. You know, ally, all ally needs to do is help you beat the things that you don't like or are afraid of. And that's not true faith. We're going to see that uh, that, that changes and frustrates uh, Saul in a moment. But I want to uh, not give Saul any more press right now because uh, we sort of probably, a lot of us know what Saul's up to. He's a bad example, right? <laughs> and Jonathan is this beautiful picture of being a friend of the king. And where does that start? Well, it starts with awe. If you want to move away from just relying on Christ to sub- Admitting and glorifying and embrace him and really abdicating to Christ, then fall in love with Christ and ask for eyes to see him in the fullness of his majesty. Um, David, we're told, when David uh, finished talking with Saul. So what was that conversation about? Well, the very preceding verse, uh, uh, passage that is, is David defeating Goliath. And and sorry for the, uh, for the Bible graphic nature of this illustration, but that conversation happened while David held Goliath's head in his hands. And he was talking about a number of things, even before and after that battle. He was talking about um, God's faithfulness and his devotion to him. And um, Jonathan would have been at his father's side. Keep that in mind. He was the heir apparent And he would have, he did watch that whole thing, that whole episode and everything that led up to it. He was uh, in a front row seat to see the Savior of Israel defeat the enemies of Israel and then come back and tell the fallen king of Israel how it went down and how God was, was vindicated and how the victory was ultimately God's. The message of God's faithfulness and David's triumph over his enemies is in bold relief as Jonathan looks at his father and the true king. But what do we also know? What do we also know about Jonathan and this story, if you're familiar with it? Jonathan is not just seeing the contrast between David and his father. There's something much more profound and important, significant, and I'm sure piercing to him. You know, Jonathan was there the entire 40 days Goliath mocked God and his armies. Jonathan was no mean or poor uh, fighter. He had already won a great victory or a significant victory just a few chapters before that. He was a warrior. He was a grown man. And he knew the Lord. And he sat in silence for 40 days and did nothing. And that came to an end when a young man did something. And Jonathan learned that there was someone greater than himself. If you're to do anything other than rely on Christ, you too must understand that there is someone greater than yourself. Now, you'll sit here and say, well, uh, Thanks, Pastor, but I, I think I knew that Jesus was greater than me. Well, I think you knew it too, and I also think you don't know it. And I went to school to learn about it, and I still don't know it on a given Tuesday at 1040 in the morning. You have to be in awe. The bigger Christ is, the easier it is to abdicate, but it's not enough just to think um, he's magnificent. You need to adore him in this language language. 
Now, after awe comes adoration. This language is so beautiful and so compelling and captures everything I want from my heart in my relationship with Jesus and as a pastor for you. As soon as he finished speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit together with the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In contrast, again, to Saul, who takes control, Jonathan Um, in a fashion, just fuses himself in devotion and affection um, to the Lord's uh, anointed king of Israel, the the picture and the portrait, the father of the true king of Israel. His heart is swept into the vortex of the wonder and majesty of David. How much more should your heart and my heart be drawn into union with Christ? And listen to this. The language in the ESV is good. He's knit together. It's not sewn. This isn't sewing where there's a seam. This is enmeshed, enfolded, woven fabric where there is no seam, that that the love of Christ eclipses the love of self. The love of David eclipsed Jonathan's love for himself. This is the engine, the power, the freedom of abdication and true um, affection for Christ. It's when you love him more than you even love you. What's remarkable too is that this word is used in places, and I think it's significant in our passage. This word is used in some places to mean bond or league and sometimes to conspire. There's, this is operating, this moment, this narrative is operating at multiple levels. Jonathan's heart is moving away from his inheritance as the son's king of his rights to the throne. And he's, he's understanding that someone greater than him and someone Um, worthy of more adoration than him, is in his presence. And so his heart is drawn together. And as another Jonathan would say much, much later about the true king, he must become greater and I must become what? Less. And that's exactly what happens. And so now we find allegiance or abdication. Everything's built up to this moment. We don't, uh, in our age, although if you study the Bible, you'll learn a lot about covenants and you'll see, and it's okay if you haven't. I, I didn't, honestly, just don't tell anybody this, but I went to seminary and I'd only read about 25% of the Bible by the time I got there, which I can assure you is not recommended. So it's okay if you don't, but... but in our world, we don't make a lot of religious sacred covenants like this, although here's a little newsflash. We're doing one right now in the whole, whole, whole service, but I'm going to leave that for Nate. I'm sure he's talked about that before. Um, but this is a solemn moment of public and eternal commitment to one another. This is why becomes so significant in the story. Jonathan is making a statement about where his heart is, and he's going to make that statement very, very vividly. He knows there's a difference between him and him, (laughs) between Jonathan and David. One time Henry VIII walked into, he's not known for humility, but he walked into his nobles were were waiting for him, and they all stood up 
And, and he said, be seated, I am not the Lord, which was, you know, okay. And um, one of his noblemen, who I don't know how long he was a nobleman, but he blurted out, indeed you're not, your majesty, for we would have fallen to our faces. Well, that's the difference right there. Jonathan is falling to his face in a fashion, speaking. So this allegiance, which becomes abdication, remember we've seen awe and adoration and now we'll just call it abdication, um, forms a commitment that is expressed in very significant ways, in a fashion falling down on his face. The robe and the armor. Now, Jonathan was the son of the king, and he would have had a robe that indicated that his um, station was higher than that um, average trooper sitting on the hill hiding from Goliath. It would have indicated his rank. We're not quite sure what it looked like, but we can confidently imagine that if you walked through the field of the hosts of the army of Israel, you would have been able to spot the son of the king by what he wore. It was a signification of his rank and of his honor and of his privilege. And he gave it away. I told you earlier that you all have dominion over something, and I don't know what kind of robe you're wearing around the house, <laughs> but that's not really the point, is it? It's, uh, it's the fact that, that there is honor and privilege. Some kind of position, large or small, makes no difference because guess what? They're all small compared to God. Jonathan took this garment of emblem of honor off and he gave it to David. But he gave something more to David. He also gave his um, weaponry, that is his strength. We're starting to see how to abdicate, aren't we? Now, if you read the whole story of, the, of uh, Samuel, you realize that it was really hard to come by actual weapons um, made out of metal if you were an Israelite, because the Philistines um, had the had blacksmithing technology, and just like warfare technology now, they guarded it. And, and we read in, other, in another place that Saul and Jonathan were the only ones that had this kind of weaponry. And again, that would have been a mark of their honor and station and position. Now, David had another sword, but he just had to kill a guy for it. So Jonathan gives away, when Jonathan gives away this precious, powerful armor, along with his prestigious honor, he's in allegiance and covenant, giving David everything that makes him who he is. So what makes you who you are? What sort of honor and strength do you have? You, you might say to me, well, I don't have a lot of strength. I don't have much money. I, no one works for me. I, that's not what I'm talking about. Every, you know, Everyone's strength is weak compared to God. He's not impressed with that kind of thing. What kind of honor do you have? You might say, well, I'm invisible. No one honors me. No one does what I say. That's fine too. You bear the image of God. You have a reputation. Will you take that garment off? Will you give what strength you have, what gifts, what time, what money, what reputation you have, and will you give them to 
the king in an act of public submission, faith, honor, strength to the true David. You know, that's what we need to see. We need to learn that, that the Swiss were never really neutral in World War II. You, you know that, don't you? They didn't fight. No, they just made money off of all the Nazi gold in their banks. You know, there's certain times in the world where you just can't be neutral. And with this circumstance, with the person and the work, the honor and the dominion of the true son of David, the true son of God, Christ, the king of heaven and earth, well, you cannot be neutral. And that's what I'm trying to help us understand as we look to some applications. There is no third way. You're either going to be Saul or you're going to be Jonathan. There's no third way. You're either going to abdicate or you're going to try to get Jesus to cooperate with your kingdom and your agenda. That's all that there is. He will be your servant, although you will give him uh, time and money and honor and sing him hymns. He will still be your servant or he will be your sovereign. And when he's your sovereign, he'll tell you what to do with your time and your money and your heart and your dreams. He'll tell you what to do with the things you want the most and the things that hurt the most, which are mostly the same things. You'll have dominion over all that. What happens when you... um, What happens when you choose the wrong way, not the right way? How do you know if you're choosing a servant or a sovereign? Well, you can, I mean, you can ask yourself if you've chucked any spears at him. Now, of course you haven't, but maybe a little. Because what does your heart do when David, or the son of David, starts to express dominion, control, and eclipses the honor and comfort that you get from your money or your relationships or your position at work or your position at home or your accomplishments at school? What sort of jealousy, what sort of resistance, what sort of rationalizations become in a manner of speaking your spears that you chuck at him in order to avoid the reality that your kingdom has been taken away and his is coming whether you abdicate or not. Or maybe I'm just talking about me and my whole life of ministry. (laughs) Ministry is the best place to hide from the kingdom of God if you really want to. But that is a different sermon. So I want you to look again. If there is no third way, and if you can look at your own heart and see the resistance and horror and discomfort and rationalization when the king starts to take over the parts of your kingdom that you love the most, well, before I leave that, I want you to realize there's a great irony in this passage. David just killed Goliath probably from 120 feet with a stone out of a sling. And Saul is in what cannot be a very large room and misses him twice with a spear. 
that's on purpose. The writers of the Bible know what they're doing. And so that's a little warning shot to you that it's not going to work. Keeping Christ your servant, if he loves you, will not work. Even if you don't love him, it ultimately won't work. So look again. What do you see? Who do you see? Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Who do you see? Can you look at him again? Now, it's hard because um, I don't know if everyone here is a Christian, and that would be wonderful if you're here exploring Christianity, so I can tell you at the very beginning, look closely. But for all you um, seasoned vets out here who've done the worship and the liturgy and read the Bible and been to the studies and got the books, uh, I'm going to ask you again to stand and listen to the king tell the story of his victory. Listen again like Jonathan listened. Fall in love with him again if you have to, or more if you have to. And then, quite simply, go home this afternoon. Simple assignment. And put honor on one side of the paper. And put strength on another side of the paper. And ask God to help you make your list no matter how great or small they are. And in fact, I would say the smaller the strength and the smaller the honor, the better. Start with the easy stuff. And then start to give them over to Christ. Abdicate. And the sovereign will become your servant. It's amazing. Bishop Massillon... Um, when Louis XIV died and orchestrated his entire um, worship service, or uh, funeral, which was essentially intended to be a worship service for a dead king, um, <clears throat> everything was laid out and there was a gold casket um, and a large candle over it and the bishop's turn finally to speak came after this elaborate ceremony. And he famously took a snuffer and went to the candle that was illuminating the golden casket and he snuffed it out and he looked at the assembled congregation of noblemen and women and said, only God is great. Jonathan learned that. Only the king is great and he's not the king. And I pray we ourselves would also, me especially, would learn that of our Savior Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. We bless you. We pray that you would give us faith to give up whatever honor and strength we have out of love and delight for the wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the nobility and virtue, the power and gentleness, the holiness and tenderness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.